Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome, history, friends, patrons all to Poland is not yet lost, the second introduction episode. So, we've sort of set the scene for what I plan to do in this podcast and why. We've given you a hopefully captivating first ever episode, which has piqued your interest and drawn you in a little bit and made you want to know more about what we're doing here. We've explained that my goal in this podcast is to trace Polish history through the 18th century, with a focus above all on diplomacy, human agency, high politics, and a sneaky intrigue. At the same time, our mission is to get to the bottom of the key question. Did the Poles do it all to themselves, or can we lay more blame at the feet of the foreign powers when explaining how the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth suddenly ceased to exist by 1795? Since we seem inherently incapable of releasing singular introductory episodes these days, You'll be happy to note that this second introduction episode here does contain some useful information, and it is worthwhile, I believe, in setting these two episodes apart. In this introduction episode, we'll explain our focus for this podcast in more detail. We explain the terminology we're going to use, and we explain how we plan on traversing such an eventful, vibrant century as the 18th without getting distracted. Well, distracted too much, that is. Yes, indeed, we have a lot of explaining to do, but... I'll also be providing some detail on the sources I'll be using, the overall structure of this series, and of course the schedule. I don't want to waste any more of your time, so without any further ado, let's get into this. If I had to pinpoint the moment when my interest in Poland began... It would have to begin, unsurprisingly if you know anything about me, in a shop when I was looking for food. I think I must have been about 12 years old at the time or so, and I came across something which gave me pause for thought. It was when I reached a Polish food section of the supermarket that 12-year-old Zach, fed on a diet of World War II documentaries from the History Channel, thought to himself, how did the Allies invent Poland? Now this obviously is a hideously stupid question, but I wanted to share it with you to show how ignorant I was of actual history at that early stage. To me, Poland was something that had been invented, literally drawn from the ground up after not even existing, to block Germany in the aftermath of the First World War. Poland was a punishment invented by the Allies during the Treaty of Versailles negotiations, and Poland was then swallowed up by Hitler in his first conquest of the Second War. End of story. I knew absolutely nothing about Poland when I was 12. I knew nothing of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, or its rich history, or culture, or traditions. I knew nothing about Copernicus's 
groundbreaking discoveries of Sobieski's slaying outside the walls of Vienna, or the unlikely unification of two very different states in the 14th century. Poland, as I said, was Germany's punishment, and she was created out of thin air, given a language, I assumed this since I wasn't told anything different, and then sent on her merry way before being occupied again by Germany. It was only when I went to my dad and did the decent thing, I asked my hideously stupid question to him, that things began to change. My query as to how the Allies managed to invent an ethnicity, a language and a culture, all with the aim of just bothering Germany, was greeted with a puzzled response from my dad, but also much appreciated patience. Dad explained in his infinite wisdom that Poland wasn't invented by the Allies in 1919. Poland had always been there. To which 12-year-old Zach, the expert in these matters, since he had watched the World War II documentaries and you hadn't, Dad, replied with a snarky, Well, if it was always there, then why did it have to be created then? My dad didn't really get where I was going with this line of questioning, and in his defence, like so many people in the Western world, didn't really know anything about Poland before it was brought back to life during the Paris Peace Conference. All he did know was that the Allies were not God, and could not create a new nation out of thin air like Adam and Eve. It was at this point that I latched onto that singularly strange idea. If Poland had always been there, then where was it before the First World War? Now again, you have to remember I had been fed on a diet of History Channel documentaries, so I was completely unaware of the history of occupation and oppression of so much of the Balkans, East Central Europe and the Baltic etc. and all across the world, but for whatever reason, Poland always stuck out. It stuck with me for sure, but since the History Channel wasn't exactly in the habit of airing documentaries on the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, my fascination with Poland was never truly quenched. A few years later, I started to play Empire Total War, and read several times over the small blurb explaining who each of the great powers were. For those that don't know, Empire Total War is a real-time strategy game which plonks you in the year 1700, challenges you to take the reins of a given state and then take over the world, basically. I was and still am utterly fascinated by the era of the 18th century, and to see the setting put on display in a game was just amazing. It really did compel me to look deeper into the era than I had previously thought to do. Naturally, I always played as France and invaded Britain, but I was always fascinated by that state in the centre of Europe, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. And all that I really took from this version of Poland was that, a case of art imitating life, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, in my plays of Empire Total War at least, was always one of the first powers to be eaten alive by its hungry neighbours. It seemed as though the computer would go out of its way to attack and invade Poland. I remember, on one occasion, the Mughal Empire from India sailed all the way around the world, just so it could land at the Commonwealth and lay siege to Warsaw. I'm not joking, it actually happened. Now, that was an especially weird game, but in any case, my point is, I remained fascinated with Poland, and I wanted to know more. And it wasn't until I started researching wars to cover for When Diplomacy Fails in the first year of its existence that this opportunity to know more properly presented itself. It was during that time, back when I covered a single war in a single hour, remember that useful formula I had, that I found something weird. The War of the Polish Succession. 
The War of the Polish Succession proposed as many questions to me as it answered. Here, clearly, was a people fighting for the crown of a country in the 1730s. Yet at the same time, the monarchy was elective. That's a bit weird, and different states are fighting over the crown. That's odd, and Saxony is a thing. What even is Saxony? The more I looked into it, the more I wanted to know more, and the more, at the same time, I was gripped by that burning question. If Poland existed in the 1700s, then where on earth did it go? Why did it have to be resurrected after the First World War if it had existed before that conflict? When did it stop existing? Why did it stop existing? To an extent, while I do feel as though I'm familiar with the broad strokes of the answers to these questions, Poland is not yet lost is my version of an answer to my 12-year-old self and to the teenage Zach who wondered where Poland had come from and why it was so consistently destroyed during the Empire Total War playthroughs I enjoyed. It is also something of a self-indulgent romp through one of my favourite periods in history, the 18th century. It is also somewhat one-sided in its perspective, insofar as you cannot talk about Poland without talking about Lithuania, since those two entities were bound together by marriage in 1386, and by political union in 1569. But I am going to focus my attentions on Poland rather than Lithuania, and this is probably obvious from the title of the podcast, since it's Poland rather than Lithuania that isn't being lost, but still it deserves reiterating here in case I'm pulled up on it later. I won't be ignoring Lithuania, that would be impossible, but I won't be going into the history of that country with the same passion for detail as I will be with Poland. Speaking of Poland... It's worth clarifying here why there are so many different names for Poland running around. The Commonwealth that I keep talking about is the shorthand name for the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which was created in 1569 when the Poles and Lithuanians bound their two states together. Now that is an event we'll be looking at in the introductory episodes we're releasing in Section A, called Creating a Commonwealth. And in section B, we'll be taking the history of the Commonwealth from 1569 up to 1700, so that you have an idea of where we are and we're all on the same page. We'll talk more about Commonwealth at that stage, but you should note that throughout Poland is not yet lost. I'll be using the terms Poland, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, and simply the Commonwealth interchangeably, since all are technically correct. Citizens of the Commonwealth saw themselves as Polish, even if they were Lithuanian, Ruthenian, Prussian, etc., in the same way that a Scottish or English or Welsh person can be considered British. The designation of Polish didn't mean from Poland in the 18th century, as much as it meant from the Commonwealth, so that's why I'm able to use it without offending anyone. If anyone is offended, sorry, but you're going to just have to make like a businessman and deal. With that housekeeping-related stuff out of the way, let me talk to you for a sec about a few other related things. A history of Poland and Lithuania in the 18th century requires someone to have an eye for the right content, for the right things to include and exclude, for deciding how deep to go when it comes to Poland's neighbours, and for accepting that I may have just got sidetracked a few times when talking about Frederick the Great. That's not just because I'm a qualified history nerd, it's also because the cast of characters that existed during the 18th century was impressive on a scale unparalleled, in my view, to any other century. 
Frederick the Great, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great, one can normally judge the vibrancy of a given century by counting the number of greats that inhabited it. Yet in our case here, we're forced to step back from simple hero worship or a mere observation of these figures, deeds and legacies. This is because these three greats all made their fortunes and legend at Poland's expense. Each one of their kingdoms benefited immensely from the seizing and harnessing of lands which were not theirs and which they had stolen from the Poles. Not only that, but upon reaching their zenith in power, the magnetism of their personalities on full display, the position of the Polish victim in historiography was adjusted to suit their mystique. These three great figures had not been predators, oh no, they were not preying upon the weakness and confusion of their neighbour, they had not taken advantage of the setbacks of this neighbour to inflate their powers or legacy or egos, instead, you see, Poland-Lithuania itself was to blame. The Commonwealth had been a destabilising influence on the continent. It had sapped the resources and patience of its neighbours by failing to keep a lid on its contagious problems. It engaged in disgusting religious persecution and remained a hotbed of religious intolerance. It had proved itself unable to reform time and time again. Worse than all that though, Poland's greatest crime of all was that it had the audacity to be weak when its neighbours happened to be strong. That, as history has shown time and again, was more than enough of a crime to sentence Poland, and the Poles themselves, to a decade of ridicule, resistance and despair. As we've already seen from just a few quotations and examples in the last episode and that Imagine exercise I got you guys to do, a great deal of ignorance did exist on the subject of Poland. It was almost as though the perception seemed to be that Poland may have been a victim, but to be honest, so say the greats of Europe, she was kind of asking for it. This series provides the firmest argument against this idea, and a major reason why I decided to do it was to write this incorrect perception, which was plainly carried into the 20th century. I did have another reason, not necessarily for starting, but certainly for persevering with this project. Those keeping abreast of current events in Poland will have noted a more sinister and unfortunate turn of events, which have continued to develop as I researched this series, but which further compelled me to complete it. In the beginning of 2018, a law was proposed in Poland called the Holocaust Bill, and it immediately drew controversy and criticism from around the world, surprising the right-wing Polish government and Prime Minister who had devised it. Per the terms of that law, it would have been illegal to say or write words expressing the fact, and it is a fact, that some Poles played a role in the Holocaust. This despite the very real, undeniable evidence to the effect that Poles, victims, though they undoubtedly were, did regrettably play a role in the Holocaust, just as all occupied populations did in some way. Six million Poles died in the course of the Second World War. Roughly half of them were Jews, and historians have written about the uniquely Polish Holocaust, which took place in that conflict, as the country was choked between the Soviets and Nazis. For a time, it seemed that the actions of Poland's right-wing government could represent the beginning of a worrying trend in Eastern Europe. You may or may not be aware that I interviewed a Holocaust survivor about a year ago on this show, and after having talked with him, he, a native of Slovakia, 
was concerned that Poland's actions would pave the way for other governments in Slovakia, in Hungary, Ukraine, Belarus, the Baltic States or the Balkans to adopt similar laws. Thankfully, much of this concern proved unfounded, at least to some extent, because in June 2018, the Polish government backpedaled on the law, abandoning it and apparently confining it to the dustbin. But we would be wise not to consider the job done. This law did not come from nowhere, and as Polish society and politics seems to be veering more towards the nationalist right, it is by no means impossible that laws like these would not be regurgitated again in a different package. The best way for people like myself, and for Tommy Reichenthal, the aforementioned Holocaust survivor, to fight these delusional laws and ideologies is to present the truth. This law and the ideology which powers it is denial. There's no other way to put it than to state that the law violates historical memory and covers up the truth. It not only sweeps under the carpet the terrible cruelties and tragedies inflicted upon Poland's rooted Jewish population, an immensely distasteful tactic in and of itself, it also absolves Poland's wartime government of any crimes committed in the name of the Nazis. In addition to this, it paints a dark picture today of the calibre of Polish statesmen in the 21st century, that they're so willing to cover up their nation's painful history, and that Polish citizens, not all of them, but some of them at least, are evidently willing to listen to this distortion, often with a tragically misplaced enthusiasm. Because this series has been so long in the works, it's often happened that events like these have quite affected me. When I first learned of this law being passed, I was so disgusted that I found it. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It's immensely difficult to return to researching this series at all. Every time I looked at Poland in history, all I could see was this nonsense law. But after a small break, I persevered, for one reason above all. I don't want people living in our world today to think that there's nothing more to Poland than a government which lives in denial of its past. 
Instead, I want people to know that before this Third Republic of the modern day, and before the Second Republic of the interwar years, there was one republic, there was a commonwealth, and that this commonwealth deserves attention and notoriety for its achievements, its progress and its tolerance. In February 2018, Poland's Senate leader appealed to Poles living abroad to report to the authorities any statements that were deemed to hurt Poland's good name. It's fairly safe to say that this good name has taken a knock already with that ahistorical and deeply insulting law. A year later, and it has become increasingly clear that Poland's government is seeking to take the liberal out of liberal democracy by effectively controlling the free press and monopolising the debate with state TV. In contrast with the German proclamations of remorse and sorrow and the state visit of Germany's president to Poland to mark the 80th anniversary of the eruption of the Second World War, Poland's official history remains somewhat dissatisfying. Perhaps a part of the reason for this can be found in the sheer trauma which Poland experienced in the 20th century on an unimaginable scale. Perhaps we also must take into account not merely the experience of the Second World War, but also the immediate aftermath, when a Soviet invasion and Western abandonment of Warsaw enabled Moscow to impose its will freely upon the aching country. With that control came a newly sanitised version of Polish history, complete with a generous account of her relations with Russia and the values of international communism. It was very far from what most Poles wanted then, and their actions in spearheading the downfall of the USSR demonstrates that the lies had not resonated. Poles, in spite of the best efforts of Russian leaders from Peter the Great to Stalin, were still Polish. Perhaps, following these experiences, it is to be expected that Poland would swing determinedly against the mainstream of social or liberal democracy. Perhaps the current nationalism and xenophobia of Poland's government is only a passing fad, and her uncomfortable position in the increasingly undemocratic bloc of eastern EU states will not be permanent. Then again, if history has taught us anything, complacency is a luxury we can ill afford. If something is not done within the next few years, Poland could sink into a hole of self-denial and national despair all of its own making. And I want to stop that. This series is my small, very small, I have to say, contribution to this effort, and it is my hope that Poland is not yet lost, can do some genuine good. In a multinational and multi-religious state such as the Commonwealth was, its foundations were never so strong than when it learned to co-opt its different elements rather than persecute them. These qualities, when the rest of Europe was forcing people to choose between loyalty to the state or to their god, resulted in an explosion of immigration to the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Before long, the Commonwealth boasted the largest population of Jews in Europe, and the industriousness of these people, in combination with a whole load of other factors, and when all the other parts were working correctly, enabled the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth to endure a kind of golden age of learning, scientific discovery and advancement over the 16th and early 17th centuries. This was the culmination of republican ideals, of ideas about the rights of man and of fledgling notions of democracy. If it was the culmination, then it was also the peak of the Commonwealth's performance. The 17th century was to be a century of incessant warfare, disruption and devastation for Poland, in which one of the sole shining lights was to be Jan Sobieski's leadership, an appearance, legendary appearance, which we've talked about before, outside the walls of Vienna in 1683. 
The damage inflicted upon the Commonwealth in the 17th century was capitalised upon by its much stronger neighbours in the 18th century. With the damage done, the Commonwealth's officials were discovering that devices and concepts which had worked so well in the past no longer functioned as they used to. The Commonwealth's learning institutions had become stagnant, while its armed forces became less professional, its agriculture less productive, and its nobles more selfish. At the same time, almost as a reaction to these woes, Commonwealth society became less tolerant and accepting, far less economically stable, and, ultimately, a great deal more vulnerable. In the latter 18th century, unable to defend itself, its neighbours in Austria, Russia and Prussia picked the Commonwealth apart, so that by 1795 there was nothing left. This indeed is the short version of the history of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, but as you can probably tell, we're here for the longer version. Aside from several introductory episodes on the Commonwealth's nobility, on where a polity as curiously unique as the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth came from, and on a somewhat brief recounting of the state's history up to 1700, we will be proceeding with a chronological approach to this subject from episode 1. This means that there will naturally be an end to this podcast at some stage, but at the same time, on the question of whether I will ever cover the 19th and 20th centuries under the same formula, I would say never say never. Depending on the kind of response this podcast gets, and obviously how busy I am, I would always be interested in telling the story of Poland to an audience that is willing to listen, and to learn. While we're on the subject of structure for this podcast series, though, I should add that I intend for it to be 100 episodes long. At time of recording, I have the first 40 episodes written. Sorry to break the fourth wall, but there you go. And we're up to the year 1750 by the 40th episode, so there is a good chance that we will make this happen, but at the same time, if you know me and my tendency to underestimate things, then you shouldn't be holding your breath. To shape a narrative which gives appropriate attention to both the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and her neighbours will not be an easy task, though. We'll be in need of some quality sources to get us through. One of the books which stood out for me to achieve such a task was Richard Butterwick's Poland-Lithuania in European Context, 1500-1795. to And really, that book sounds almost exactly like what we're trying to do here. But... It was $175 on Amazon, so yeah, that wasn't going to happen. A bit peeved that a book so important to my task should be out of reach, I decided that I would have to build my own account of Poland-Lithuania in a European context, and I did this by rating those books, which dealt with a small subsection of Polish history in the 18th century, and then painstakingly combing these pieces together into my notes before putting them into a script. Some examples of books I have used for this purpose, just off the top of my head, is Adam Zamoyski's excellent book, Poland's Last King, which examines the reign of Stanislaw Poniatowski, the final monarch of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Norman Davies' God's Playground is there too, of course, although Davies tends to rush through the 18th century a bit too quickly for my liking, and will be doing anything but rushing in this podcast series. Another book, which I was fortunate to find freely available on archive.org, and which in many ways is still the best of its kind on the subject, is The Second Partition of Poland, by Harvard professor Robert Howard Lord, published in 1915. 
Countless other books will also make an appearance, some of which I was obliged to pay top dollar for, for the simple reason that they are as essential to this study as they are rare. Of course, as I have done with other series since, this story in between will be padded out significantly by the academic articles I'm fortunate to have access to as a fresh-faced PhD student. Because books on Polish history, particularly on the 18th century, seem so rare, it was quite a comfort to note that, while historians didn't rush to release a book on the subject, many times over, someone did write an article on a given topic which was just as informative. I should reiterate, though, that building this narrative was not easy, but then again I didn't expect it to be, as I think, was it JFK that once said it? We do these things not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Poland is not yet lost is a love affair which I have been nursing for some time, and it appealed to me not just because I was utterly fascinated by the subject matter, but also because, as I want to do within the realm of history podcasting, I'm always gripped by the appeal of going to where no other history podcaster has gone before. No other history podcaster examined the July crisis in the detail that I did in 2014. No other history podcaster has examined Arden's 1916 Rising in the way that I did either. No other history podcaster, as far as I know, has examined Louis XIV's era in the obsessively detailed way that I did. The thing is, of course, these were all projects which took place under the banner of When Diplomacy Fails, In this case, the series is a Patreon exclusive, but hopefully, like those aforementioned series, you will view our venture here as similarly worthy of your money and time. It is my sincerest hope that you do, not just because it's a fascinating story, but also because I'll be making my living and paying for my PhD on the back of this series' success. If that sounds like a bit of a gamble, I think it's a gamble worth taking. I always knew that researching Polish history in proper detail was bound to be a challenge. It was with this challenge in mind that I approached the idea of a Polish history miniseries, which I set as a goal on Patreon, and which I promised I would start producing once I passed the target of $500 a month. Thanks to the generosity of my patrons, we have since surpassed that target and never looked back. But it was when I accepted that a Polish history miniseries would now require my attention and when I got those same Patreon supporters to vote on the century that they would like me to tackle, that two things happened. The first was that, clearly, the 18th century won the vote, as you could see, because that's what our subject matter is. This surprised me, since I knew that the 18th century was the most depressing of the Commonwealth's existence, behind the 20th century, of course, but the 20th century wasn't an option because I felt it was too recent to be proper history. But there you go. Anyway, the second thing that happened was that in spite of the depressing nature of the content, I quickly concluded that I had a great story in front of me. And what was more, I concluded that it would take more than a mini-series to tell this story. From these conclusions, my imagination began to run a little bit wild, until I settled on the fact that if I wanted to do the story of Poland in the 18th century justice, I would have to go into proper detail to do it, and to release as many episodes as was necessary to get the story told. After that, it was only natural to imagine a brave new project. It is worthwhile now to talk a bit about our theme music. 
and the theme from which this podcast series has taken its name. As you saw from the opening quotation in the first introduction episode, and the fact that we opened the podcast episode with that lovely tune, the Polish national anthem is our soundtrack. The Polish national anthem is known to Poles as the Mazurek Dobrowskiego, and it takes the form of a lively folk dance with patriotic words, and it was written shortly after the final partition. It was created between the 16th and 19th of July, 1795, in Italy, just as the Polish legions were leaving Italy to fight with Napoleon, in what were then merely the French Revolutionary Wars, and the Poles were under the command of a General Jan Henryk Dobrowski, who lived from 1755 to 1818. Dobrowski is, of course, the Dobrowski of March March Dobrowski, in case you were wondering. Polish affinity for Napoleon Bonaparte was an important fact of the Napoleonic Wars, so it's only appropriate that the full version of the anthem captures this fact. The author of the Song of the Polish Legions in Italy, as the anthem was originally called, was supposed to have been Józef Wybicki, General Dobrowski's close associate, but just so you know, there remains an element of uncertainty over who actually wrote the music and provided the words. The folk tune and the inspiring texts, with the first verse beginning with Poland's not dead as long as we live, immediately captured the attention of the soldiers, Poland's emigres and the country's inhabitants. Thanks to the flexibility of the Polish language though, that first line of the anthem has been translated in several ways, one of them being Poland is not yet lost. So that's the version we're going for in our series, and obviously that's the name we gave to this podcast. It was in many ways an essential message for those Poles who marched under Napoleon's banner were stateless, after all, according to the standards of the time. That Napoleon was soon to change this fact with his creation of the Duchy of Warsaw singled the French dictator out as a figure of affection, admiration and fierce loyalty for countless Poles who served in Napoleon's armies and who were with him to the end. The end of Napoleon meant the end of Polish independence, though, a light which was not to shine until the deliberations of Versailles had been worked through, and the Third Republic of Poland was declared in 1921. It was to last less than 19 years. It should go without saying that I will, on occasion, have some trouble with pronunciation, you may have noticed that already, so do bear with me. If any Polish natives or expats are currently listening in, then thank you so much for joining. I really am so happy to have you with me, and I mean that sincerely. I do hope I do the story of your nation justice, and do get in touch with me politely if I happen to butcher any of your great statesmen's names. I will, as always, do my best. FYI, I will be making use of the anglicised version of Polish words where possible. Since this is a podcast, the intention is to make the spoken word as clear as possible and to not become too bogged down with definitions or technicalities. And it is for that reason that I do not intend to give you a lesson in the Polish language and I am, after all, the last person qualified to do something like that. The aim of the series is to bring the history of Poland to an English-speaking audience in an accessible, digestible and above all, enjoyable manner. This is the unspoken goal of mine in starting this and any other history podcast I take on, so I hope I have your patience as we work through any issues that might pop up. So this is it. After so much preparation, 
I can't believe this is finally happening. It should go without saying that I am very excited to begin Poland is not yet lost, but as I mentioned before, we have some introductory episodes to get into first before we simply launch this podcast into episode one. So I hope you'll join me for the first of these introductory episodes as we ask that all-important question. How did the Commonwealth of Poland-Lithuania become a Commonwealth in the first place? Ah, interesting. I hope you'll join me for that. But until then, my name is Zach. This has been the second introduction episode for Poland is Not Yet Lost. Thanks for listening, history, friends and patrons. And I'll be seeing you all soon.